Hey everyone, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. Today, we're super excited to have on Tom Franco, who is a veteran of the private equity industry and currently leads fundraising at CDNR, one of the largest and oldest firms in the world, with its latest fundraising coming in around $16 billion. Prior to CDNR, Thomas served as the CEO of a consulting firm focused on helping private equity managers. And he also successfully launched a global publishing business, PEI Media, which serves the alternative asset industry. Tom also attended Notre Dame like Alex and I, and so we're incredibly excited to welcome him to the show today. How is everything going? Hey, thanks, uh, Connor. Thanks, Alex. Really great to be with you. I should say great to be with you via Zoom and not in South Bend where <laughs> it's probably really freezing. And uh, it's cold in New York, but uh, it's not uh, South Bend type cold. Very true, very true. Well, to start off, I think it would be super helpful if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you found yourself pursuing you know, this long career in private equity. Well, uh, you know, the question has embedded in it a certain amount of intentionality, yeah. which uh, certainly do- <laughs> doesn't uh, exist. And I, I, I know that you've had conversations with a whole range of people and, and I'm guessing one of the big takeaways is how journeys through careers in, in life is really a lot of serendipity. So, mm-hmm. you know, look, uh, as you said, I, I'm a graduate of uh, Notre Dame uh, in ancient times. And, uh, and really, uh, I was a major in probably one of the most... Uh, sort of abstract uh, majors that you could possibly think of, which is the program of liberal studies. I don't know if you have any friends in the program of liberal studies, but mm-hmm. it's, it is a, um, it's a wonderful, um, you know, reading experience through the great books. Uh, and, but it doesn't exactly put you on a uh, path to finance. So uh, at, at the time when I graduated, uh, I had to sort of think about what can you do? What was I prepared to do? And uh, I knew everything, but was prepared for nothing. So uh, that led me to teaching. And that's kind of what, you know, teachers do. So I, I spent uh, a year teaching uh, high school English, uh, 19th century humanities, and that was a, a, probably the toughest thing I've done in my entire career. Uh, I burned out after a year, went to Poland, uh, taught at a uh, University of Krakow, seventh uh, oldest university in the world. It's where uh, Copernicus went to college. Uh, and also wrote articles at the time, the Catholic Church was the sort of the opposition party to the communist party. And um, so I had fun writing uh, articles and submitting them to various magazines, came back to the U.S. after uh, a year and a half in in Poland, uh, took a job as editor of a magazine called World Construction Magazine, had no idea about engineering or construction, but I was the editor. And, And from there, I found my way to Wall Street working for a firm that uh, specialized in mergers and acquisitions 
and hostile takeovers. So there was a period in the 80s and, and, and 90s where there was a lot of corporate restructuring going on in the US, some friendly, some not so friendly. And that's, that's how I became sort of, you know, transitioned more into, you know, a finance role. And uh, eventually met a guy by the name of Joe Rice, founder of Clayton Dubler and Rice, who was in an office on Third Avenue, where, which he, he had like, you know, one office that he shared with another guy, Martin Dubler and the secretary, and they looked like they were going nowhere. <laughs> uh, and today, uh, you know, it's a asset management company with, uh, you know, 50 billion AUM. So, and I guess I was at the right place at the right, <laughs> right time. Uh, I wish I could credit it to, to more than that. Yeah, no, I, I love that. It, that definitely has been a common theme uh, throughout all the conversations we have. It's like you put yourself in as good situations as you can. And oftentimes it's a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill, a little bit of something else. Um, but a lot I talked to a lot of arts and letters kids at, uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, and I do have a fondness for the uh, program of liberal studies. And by the way, these guys are so much smarter than my cohort. And by the way, they are, uh, mo most of them that I've talked to, you know, have sort of uh, double majors. Uh, double majors and that kind of stuff wasn't really that common uh, when I was in school. And a lot of them are doing, you know, like economics and they are sort of solving for the issue that I was dealing with leaving mm -hmm. school I didn't have the band you know the uh, sort of the the breadth and now I see the kids really being a lot more uh, to use the word I started with purposeful about mm -hmm. how they uh, you know curate their their uh, their narrative which yeah. I think is a good thing actually yeah definitely I think there is a lot of value in uh, you know, maybe doing a little bit of a non-traditional path, not just finance. And personally, I'm a computer science major, but going to go do investment banking after graduation. So I kind of like having a little bit of a different skill set than, you know, probably 95% of Wall Street. You um, did an internship in investment banking. Right? I did. Yeah. 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 And how was that? Was it all, all it was cracked up to be? Yeah, it was, it was a good experience. I was at Cities M&A Group and uh, learned a lot, got on some live transactions, um, Definitely an interesting experience, but I definitely learned a lot throughout the summer. They cram a lot into 10 weeks. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, to move on a little bit, I know, you know, you mentioned how you got to CDNR um, and how you lead the fundraising team now. Could you talk a little bit about what that role entails for people listening who might not be familiar with that process? How do you go about managing all these different relationships, including limited partners? Could you just yeah. talk a little bit about that? Maybe, you know, kind of historically, uh, let me just say something about Clayton Dubler and Rice. First of all, 44-year-old firm, okay? So a pioneer, really, of the private equity industry. If you think of going back to the late 70s, there were, you know, three major firms. There was KKR, which is still around. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there was a firm called Forsman Little, no longer exists, and, uh, and Clayton Dubler and Rice. And um, 
the interesting thing is just to emphasize what a cottage industry private equity really was and, and still has aspects of cottage industry-esque-ness to it uh, is the fact that Marty Dubelier, founder of Clayton Dubelier and Rice, went to high school with uh, Jerome Colbert, Jerry Colburn, who was a founder of KKR. They went to a uh, prep school, both got kicked out, by the way, <laughs> uh, for a prank during a, uh, a school assembly. They left, let, let off a, a firecracker. They then both, you know, they ended up going to, uh, uh, Marty went to Princeton. I can't remember where uh, Jerry went, but they all, both went to Harvard Business School. Jerry's uh, firm, KKR, uh, was uh, really spun out of an investment banking shop, Bear Stearns. And, and so they were a very financially driven organization. Marty uh, graduated from Harvard Business School and he became sort of a serial CEO. In, in fact, he became a hired gun if uh, somebody had a business that they owned that was in trouble, oftentimes engaged by banks in the workout area to go in, parachute in, and turn businesses around. And um, so it so happened that Jerry at his firm had a business that was underperforming and he went out and uh, recruited uh, Marty to go and fix this business. M Marty was successful in, in turning the business around. He got a, he got a consulting check essentially and uh, and Jerry made a lot of money on his new money investment in this business. <clears throat> and then Marty Dubelier plays tennis with his tennis buddy, Joe Rice, and complains that he only got a consulting check and his buddy made all this money off this new investment. And Joe Rice said, hey, sir, I have an idea. And the idea was to form Clayton Dubelier and Rice. So, I mean, wow. I, what I'm trying to... Uh, convey in that story is just the sort of the close-knit community, these overlapping relationships. Uh, serendipity is a word that I used before on the tennis court, uh, you know, making, making uh, something happen. But these firms grew in very different ways. And uh, the KKR today is, you know, publicly owned. It has many different lines of business. It's a uh, you know, diversified alternative asset manager, really high quality. I, I don't know how many thousands of people they have around the world. CDR kind of grew up with a distinctive model of, and by the way, I'm going to get to your question, Connor. Grew up in a, a, with an idea that what we're going to have are people that have had a career running businesses, managing businesses, and teamed them up with folks that have been financing businesses. So kind of think of Noah's Ark, you know, two by two, operating partner, a financial partner, sourcing deals, evaluating deals, post acquisition, the, uh, the CDR operating, partner going in as executive chair or interim CEO, 
and uh, you know, creating value. So over our 44 year period, executing this model with one fund, you know, we do one fund at a time, we're on our 11th fund today, we're investing out of our 11th fund, but everything we do is in a single fund. Mm -hmm. uh, pursuing this strategy, you know, 80% of the value that we generate comes from making the businesses that we own uh, perform better uh, in terms of growth of EBITDA. The half of that comes from growth, half comes from uh, you know, productivity and, uh, and cost reduction. So when, when uh, CDNR uh, was raising its seventh fund, this is sort of 20 years after its founding, uh, it was a challenging uh, market environment and they actually had a period of underperformance, uh, which needed some explaining. So they needed a storyteller. And so um, it wasn't just that they needed somebody to help them raise capital and talk to investors. They needed somebody that could spin a narrative. Mm. Hence the you know, program of liberal studies and the stories. And, you know, uh, I mean, I can hardly add to tell you the truth, but, uh, but I can tell a good story. And so telling that story was, was really important. Mm. And um, the first part of the story was uh, to apologize. And if you, I think if you know anything about the world of finance, there are not a lot of folks that are, you know, with their core skill set is apologizing, right? Uh, but, you know, my view was that the firm had had some missteps and the, the first thing they should do, go out and apologize. And uh, that was a little counterintuitive, but uh, in fact, that's what, that's what the firm did. But you can't just apologize. You got to have to. You have to say, you know, what what's going to be different going forward. And we had a story around changing processes and changing people, and so uh, I think the way that I got the job because I was an outside consultant at that time was being able to navigate um, that particular environment. And so I was, we raised a fund. It was a successful fundraise in the end. And then I was invited to join the firm. And uh, just to go to, you know, share just how sort of naive I was, I didn't really feel like I should join. Um, why? Uh, because it seemed to me that there were really only two seats at the table at Clayton, Dubler and Rice. Either you were a supernova former chief executive officer that knew how to run businesses and turn businesses around or transform businesses, or you were a supernova investor, somebody that uh, you know, had a lot of financial acumen and uh, you know, the ability to discern uh, you know, risk reward in a, in a very effective way. I didn't see where my seat was and I didn't, you know, and I was the CEO of my own consulting business and, you know, I was the king of my domain and what was I going to do exactly? But I finally was persuaded to go and shortly after 
joining the firm, guess what? Financial crisis. And the, <laughs> and the firm has to go out and raise money. Yeah. And I went from being kind of last on the agenda at the Monday meeting to the first on the agenda. Like, right. where is this capital going to come from? So it was sort of like a very organic uh, sort of transition into the firm that started with a challenging fundraise, which was followed by a challenging fundraise. And, you know, I kind of got through both of those. And, you know, suddenly there was a third chair at the table in the sense that, you know, we got to go out and source new investments. We've got to buy well. We got to operate these businesses well. So that's the operating guy. And by the way, there's a fierce competition for capital. So we need to have the capital, which is the gasoline for these transactions. So, you know, there was never, there wasn't a fundraising function before I got there. And, you know, and now, so the fund that I first raised was like a $4 billion fund. Our last is was $16 billion. And so it just gives you a sense that I was just sort of like scaling with the industry. So I don't, my self-conception isn't as a, a fundraiser, but, I, you know, I, I guess I, I do that, but we can talk about the philosophy of fundraising if you yeah. want. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's a great way to go. And I was going to ask, you know, you just mentioned the, the, the increase in the size of the funds since you first started to, to now. Has that changed your approach? Has, has the increase in size changed your approach at all? Has, it, um, has the process become kind of larger? Is there a bigger team involved? Um, and then do you like try and prepare for longevity? Like who else is going to take over? Who else is being groomed to, to really do that for the firm? Those are, Alex, those are really really important questions. And by the way, uh, those are exactly the questions that the most sophisticated asset owners ask us when we're raising money, precisely that. Right. You know, look, you can go and look at the track record and you can deconstruct the track record, but you know what? These are, these are long-term marriages. I mean, these are, you know, like 10-year relationships and more. And, and so it, understanding people, dynamics, motivations, uh, are really important. So for your listeners that are psychology majors, uh, I think private equity is a terrific place to uh, to look for a job. Uh, we can go into more detail, but the scaling of the industry has been so uh, incredible, incredible, and so fast right. that we're we're sort of putting in the infrastructure, you know, real time. Uh, right. We had a, uh, you know, at our, uh, you know, Monday meeting this past week, you know, we had two or three new people that we had a digital uh, expert coming in as a sort of a operating advisor to uh, accelerate digital uh, strategies across our 40 portfolio businesses. We had a domain subject matter expertise, former FDA uh, official who's joining our healthcare uh, industry vertical. So, uh, you know, it's, it's 
you know, it is amazing to just see how uh, how we're growing in terms of personnel. So I think in terms of how we have organized ourselves is uh, one of the main main changes from the early days is to verticalize, become more industry specialists. So the organization has gone from sort of what I will describe as all-purpose swamis, uh, you know, able to do everything, you know, generalists, to uh, much more, uh, you know, focused and specialized models. So we have really, if you think about it, you know, we have four industry verticals, industrials, tech and software, um, consumer retail, and healthcare. So those are the four industry verticals. And those are broad verticals. And underneath those verticals, we have sub-segments. So we have probably uh, 15 to 20 industry sub-segments. And uh, so, and each of the sub-segments have operating partners with very relevant industry expertise, uh, industry networks, uh, industry insights, and they are joined at the hip, as I mentioned, with the the investment team. So we've kind of, while we're scaling, we're also downsizing in a sense, so that we are now effectively like four private equity firms, with you know a common philosophy in terms of value creation, a common you know investment committee process. Uh, so doing four different things, but unified by common processes. So scaling and downsizing at the same time, if you will. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And it re leads well into the next question we had about continuing to build a differentiated strategy as the industry has obviously grown up uh, during your time in it. Um, I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned kind of building out those four verticals. Could you talk a little bit about like where you think the advantage is for that compared to, um, I'm just thinking of like firms out there that focus like specifically on one thing like Toma Bravo or El Catterton where they're tech or consumer only. Are there like specific advantages for having kind of that larger um, firm structure as compared to just being, you know, one specific topic? <clears throat> well, the way that I would answer that is Number one, just as a broad principle, specialization mm. outperforms generalists. And there's actually empirical evidence that suggests that. That, that analysis was first done in the, in the mutual fund industry, but it's since kind of mm. crossed over to private markets. Uh, the question is, uh, if you are define yourself as a hammer is everything a nail mm. and a single specialization i guess has that uh potential challenge that needs to be managed and i'm i'm not saying that that's tom tom bravo has done a wonderful job <laughs> you know so I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not uh i'm not being critical of uh, of them at all but the advantage i think of uh a multi-industry 
specialty approach, as long as it's a manageable few, is that you know you not you 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 can maybe it's not such a great time to invest in healthcare, but it's a great time to be an industrial. So you just right. have a little bit more uh, flexibility in your mandate that may be uh, beneficial to margin. Though I don't have any empirical evidence to, to share on that. The broader point is specialization is, tends to be more effective than, than not. And, and, it, and it makes sense, right? You just yeah. understand these businesses better. You have just larger networks, more relationships. And, mm-hmm and uh, experience. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And to circle back a little bit to a previous point you made about, um, you know, having like the operating partner, the financing partner, could you talk about kind of just the culture of operations at CDNR and like what um, you guys are actually doing, like once a portfolio company is acquired, like how do you actually go about uh, driving change? You mentioned, obviously there's growth and then um, potentially cost reductions, but um, maybe get like a little more granular on that for people who uh, yeah. don't really understand the full dynamics of it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, the first, it all starts with uh, organizationally what you think you are trying to do. Um, and we as a partnership are completely unified around the idea that we want to make exceptional uh, investment returns for our limited partners, the suppliers of capital, and to do so by creating, uh, you know, great businesses. Uh, so it starts from there, and then you have to kind of think about the staffing architecture that gets you there. And obviously, if 80% of your value creation is from making businesses perform better, you better have uh, a group of uh, individuals that know how to you know manage businesses so that is sort of the justification for the for the operating model and um, and it begins sort of when you're looking for businesses so you have two different perspectives around the asset that you're looking at you have typically somebody who's in there kind of you know, 20s or 30s, comes from an investment banking background, Connor, like you, Mm -hmm. uh, who are running the numbers. But you also have guys that uh, are looking at those spreadsheets and say, hey, you know what, I ran a business just like this. And, uh, you know, here's what I think we should be focused on. So the whole due diligence process really becomes what can we do with the business that the current owner can't do and what other people looking at the asset may not be able to do. Mm-hmm. So getting that differentiated edge actually, you know, gets you engaged in the sort of almost the transformation plan even before you own the business, right? And so our due diligence is very heavily focused on what can we do with the asset? In fact, when the when the deal teams go to the investment committee, the first question is, and I'm not kidding, uh, do we have permission to own this asset? And you go, well, what do you mean permission? You know, it's like, it's, it's a process of we're in the, no. Do we have permission to own this asset? Is there something that we can do with this business that other pe- folks can't? 
Hmm. And so the, and our uh, investment committee process is very iterative so that after four or five investment committee meetings and decks that are, you know, 200 pages long, what we have is actually, you know, the operating blueprint for the business once we go in and own the business. Hmm. And, you know, there, there may be, you know, the, 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 the range of initiatives is, is, is pretty, pretty broad, but there's always, you know, growth and growth could be, uh, could be organic growth. It could be sales force effectiveness. Uh, is the sales force doing the right job? Are they the mix? Are we selling the right products? Uh, it could be a creative merger and acquisition, ma making add-on acquisitions. Uh, it could be innovation, you know, new products, you know, a lot of around supply chain, uh, talent initiatives. ESG is a big part of value creation today. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just because asset owners demand it, it's customers demand it, employees demand it. Uh, businesses with strong ESG narratives uh, are ascribed to higher valuation when they go public. And oh, by the way, uh, there's a proliferation of ESG linked financing, so you can get debt on more attractive terms. So there's a whole, you know, toolkit. And um, so the operating partner typically serves as executive chair of the business. If the incumbent management falters for some reason or a transition needs to be made, the CDR operating partner will go in and serve as interim chief executive officer until mm -hmm. we find a replacement. Our operating partners are supplemented by a whole group who are not full-time, but bring a great deal of functional expertise. So we have supply chain experts, we have digital acceleration experts, we have uh, uh, people that have been chief financial officers at big companies who can go in and, and help the finance function in, at, our, at our companies. Um, you know, so um, that's basically how the, the, the model uh, is applied. Right, and anyway, so Tom, I, you know, I think from the conversation we've had today and, and other people we've spoken to in the past, um, when it comes to looking at the companies that you're targeting and, and looking for ways to find efficiencies and strategies that you can do to make a company better, it seems like there's a lot of, at the very least, maybe creativity or some sort of, uh, you know, to have to be able to think about things in a different way than other private equity firms or other managers. And in the beginning of our conversation, you, you mentioned how when you were in college, but you were program liberal studies major um, and didn't really consider private equity uh, in college. But right now, I think, you know, Connor and I have, have talked about this and realized that there's a lot of students at Notre Dame and other universities in the country that from the time they're freshmen are, are putting themselves on a very rigid track, like of how to get into private equity. Um, and so just like was curious about your thoughts in terms of that. And if and if that's really, you know, the best thing for the industry or for the students. And then if you have some advice, maybe for students who aren't on that rigid track or um, you know, who might have some, some different backgrounds uh, in colleges that they've explored. Well, it, you know, in many ways, that's a, and you won't be surprised from a liberal arts major, uh, that, that's a philosophical question in many right. respects, you know, sort of, I think about uh, 
you know, Charles Dickens and uh, David Copperfield, the first line, you know, uh, is, you know, will I be the hero of my own life? You know, I think that, you know, existentially, you kind of kind of have to, the most important thing, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, is to tr really try to figure out, you know, what your path is, what what you want, uh, and, and that feels right, uh, rather than, you know, looks right, you know what I mean? And, um, and sometimes, you know, the most securitous roads uh, are the roads that lead to, to Rome, you know what I mean? It's, uh, yeah. I can only speak from experience that, you know, my narrative is fairly asymmetric. And, um, and I also think that, you know, um, relational thinking in the end is, is probably the the most important. You, the technical skills, I'm sure, Connor, you got a good technical training when you were interning, right? You yeah. probably looked at a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> you can get you can get that training uh, and you probably get it online, you know. I mean, yeah. but the but the idea of kind of seeing things that other people don't see and making judgments mm -hmm. is what is critical. If you think about it, guys. If you think about it, in one way, you know, what we do is really, really simple. We make a half a dozen decisions each year, mm -hmm. you know, probably more than that, actually. Uh, but there are the half a dozen types of decisions. Mm -hmm. What do we buy and why? Mm -hmm. When we own the business, do we have the right management team? You know, because we can't go in and manage these. We do have operating guys that can go in as interim CEO, but we, we're not the operators of the business. And so we constantly have to, you know, you know, do we have the right people? And then we have to figure out, is this the right time to sell or not, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you think about it, and those are all judgment calls that are obviously supported by, uh, you know, vast amounts of data but at the end of the day you have to have to call it and talent i think is is really really important jack was great and for your listeners who probably don't know who jack welch was he was a legendary chief executive officer of general electric he was the ceo of the century anyway jack used to say uh who would you rather hang out with? And he was a big fan of the Boston Red Sox. He said, who would you rather hang out with? The accountant of the Boston Red Sox or head of player personnel? I can tell you who I'd like to hang out with, you know? <laughs> and so it's that talent uh, is part of the equation is really important in private equity. Yeah. And I think that opens the feel to you know a whole raft of different kinds of people that can make you know people judgments i was joking about uh, you know psychology majors i i actually think that you know more than ever as the you know kind of the license to do business has changed mm -hmm. uh skills around you know social dynamics uh equity, uh, ESG, uh, diversity. These are 
these are critical issues, right? Yeah. These are critical issues and really important for for businesses. And you know, we have we actually uh, a couple of years ago started a foundation within a private equity firm. I don't think we're the only private equity firm with a foundation. And so we have a whole group of people that are trying to figure out how to uh, contribute money uh, to kind of advance a social agenda, which sort of matches with, you know, our sort of uh, central philosophy, which is, you know, building businesses, building value. And we're trying to do that through uh, employment equity, basically. So we're very focused on, on that issue. So, you know, there's a whole range of people that go into a, to make a private equity firm work. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And to wrap up, I had one follow-up question um, about making those major decisions. Um, personally, over the past few months, I've been reading a bunch of books on like mental models and principles. I'm curious if over the course of your career, are there any kind of key foundational frameworks or principles that you think have really helped guide you, especially given how kind of uh, adaptable you've been throughout your career in all these different roles? Is there any like key ideas or principles that uh, you'd like to kind of mention to a college student who's just getting out there in the workforce? Hey, listen, I, I think, you know, I'm an old guy, so <clears throat> probably easy for me to say, you know, uh, don't be afraid, you know, uh, there, there's a, there's a place, uh, for you in the, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the world, you gotta, you gotta find it. Uh, don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what you guys are doing, listen, hats off to you guys. I think, you know, asking people for advice. Yeah. People love to give advice. It's unbelievable. Never ask for a job. Always ask for advice, right? <laughs> That's how you get a job, right? Uh, right, me too. And uh, so I, I, I applaud what you're, uh, what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I think I wish I could have, uh, you know, better, better uh, soundbite for you. Um, I do know that uh, I try to give my daughter, who's at Notre Dame, I'll give her a shout out. Uh, she's uh, at Walsh, which is one of the great uh, dorms, as you know. Um, she never takes my advice, so uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't say buyer beware. <laughs> ask me questions, okay? Uh, well, yeah, I think that's the the general uh, relationship that happens there. At some point, you never <laughs> want to listen to your parents, right? <laughs> Um, well, that, that, that wraps up the, the general kind of questions, broad questions we had, Tom, but we like to end off each podcast uh, with this, this brief uh, rapid fire question section. So there'll be five questions and you can give very short answers, like 10 or 15 seconds. Um, so it doesn't need to be anything too crazy or too long. And they don't pertain to, to work really uh, at all directly, but you can, obviously you can make them if you want to. Um, so the first one is, uh, what is a book that you're reading right now that you'd recommend to people or what's a book that you've read in your lifetime that you think has been really impactful for, for you? I think War and Peace, uh, you know, Tolstoy, that's a, that's a book you can sink your teeth into and uh, it tells you all you need to know. Awesome. Second is what is a skill that you're still trying to develop right now or that you'd like to develop 
or maybe what's some sort of area in your life that you'd like to, to kind of learn more about? So I'd like to uh, learn how to play the piano. I played piano when I was young. I have a, a, a baby grand piano in the uh, living room, which is silent and uh, it's there beckoning. And uh, all I have to do is sit down and, and start, but I, I haven't been able to do that just yet. Right. No, it's tough. I'd second that, but it's, uh, you know, it's hard to get, get the right person or right program to teach you. Um, so third one is, you know, how do you generally stay up to date with the latest developments in kind of private equity, uh, investing, or kind of macroeconomics generally? Well, I read the uh, Financial Times, uh, New York Times, uh, and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, those are three things that uh, I do. Uh, I'm really fascinated by the media, have been an investor in media companies. PEI is the most important uh, you know, news outlet for private equity information. I was a founding shareholder, no longer a shareholder, but that is that is sort of the the golden source for private equity, uh, you know, related information. Yeah, fantastic. So, fourth question here is: if you could pursue a, a career in a different industry, so maybe that's now, or maybe imagine you're back coming out of college. Uh, what's something that you think might have uh, kind of you know piqued your interest? So I think I'd go back to my beginnings and uh, be a teacher. In fact, I uh, applied for Teach for America, uh, and I haven't heard back yet. From uh, <laughs> maybe I've aged yeah. out, <laughs> but uh, I think that you know I had a one-year stint, and I probably should have given it a little longer. Yeah, well, I'll say it. I think you'd be a pretty good teacher from just what you've given us here in this in this episode. Uh, so fifth question, last one here in this section is, you know, with the pandemic, you know, hopefully slowing down soon and the new stuff kind of, uh, you know, going away um, or slowing down, where in the world would you like to travel to or where is something you kind of missed out on in the last two years? Oh, my goodness. What a great question. You know, uh, as part of my job, uh, I traveled all over the world, you know, literally. So I was talking to people from Riyadh this morning. Uh, you know, uh, China last night, and uh, you know it's painful to to be on Zoom and and not in these right. different parts of the world. But the one place that I would like to go is to uh, is to Florence. I just watched the uh, Netflix uh, Medici <laughs> series, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I think Florence beckons to me. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic, Tom. Thank you so much for, for your time and for coming on and sharing with everybody all of your, uh, all of your experiences. Well, guys, uh, uh, look me up. Uh, I'll be out on campus uh, and, um, you know, keep up the good work. If I can be helpful in any way, uh, just let me know. All right, everyone, that wraps up our conversation with Tom Franco from CDNR. We hope you enjoyed our conversation on Tom's incredibly successful career, trends in the private equity industry, and advice for college students interested in investing. For those interested in learning more about private equity, I'd encourage you to check out two of our prior episodes. First, I'd recommend Capital Markets and Private Equity with Doug Brody, a partner at KKR. In that episode, we dive into the basics of PE and how PE firms generate returns. I'd also recommend listening to one of our newer episodes, What is Middle Market Private Equity with Elias Dacus, who is a partner at Minotian Partners. 
in contrast to CDNR, which is a mega fund that has a large amount of capital to invest, um, middle market funds have much smaller fund sizes and thus the types of things and companies that they invest in differ. So I'd recommend giving that episode a listen if you're interested in getting a better understanding of the middle market space. We also have a really interesting conversation on how MidOcean handled challenges with their portfolio companies during the pandemic. So I'd really encourage you to give that one um, a listen. So as always, if you have any guests or topics that you'd like us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to us on our website. With that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next episode.